At Qualcomm, we believe in staying connected, and you can see us wherever 5G is helping transform telemedicine, supporting remote education, and powering mobile PCs. The Invention Age is here. Learn more at qualcomm.com slash invention age. Hi. If you like listening to Flash Forward, you might also like another podcast that I happen to produce called The Story Collider. Every week, The Story Collider presents true personal stories about science in people's lives. Sometimes it's scientists talking about incredible adventures in the field or heartbreak in the lab. Sometimes it's non-scientists telling stories about a brush with science that changed them forever. Some of the stories are funny, some of them are sad, and you can listen to all of them at storycollider.org or on any podcasting app. With that, let's go to the show. Hello and welcome to Flash Forward. I'm Rose and I'm your host. Flash Forward is a podcast about the future. Every week we take on a different possible or not so possible tomorrow. Every episode we start with a little trip to the future before returning to the present to talk to some experts about how that would really go down. Got it? Great. This week, we're headed to the year 2051. So really, if you calculated it, as he should have, all the topsoil would have wound up in the oceans after just a few hundred years. It's so frustrating when writers don't take scientific accuracy seriously. Yeah. So, you disagree? No, no, I see your point. Okay, what do you really think? Well, first, if you do the math right, it would actually take a few thousand years, not a few hundred. And second, you're really going to fixate about the soil instability in a book that also involves a two-headed hoofed creature that speaks in orchestra music and lives for hundreds of years? It just seems like an interesting choice. Like a stupid choice. And I looked at him and I said, you should see my wife. Hi, it's so good to see you. This is a business meeting, it's fine. Let's cut the small talk. Great. Hey, can I buy you a drink? Oh, uh, no thank you. Come on, just one drink. Sorry, I have a boyfriend. So, you don't have a boyfriend. I do not want a drink. Please leave me alone. Come on, I'm a nice guy. So in this future, we've invented totally accurate lie detectors, and we've decided that everybody has to wear them around all the time. The inability to lie is a really common trope in comedy, cartoons, movies, fables. George Washington famously did not lie about whether he cut down that cherry tree. Ironically, that story is actually a lie, made up by one of George Washington's first biographers because he thought the story would help sell books. He wasn't wrong about that. But we see this trope, the inability to lie, pop up all over the place. Pinocchio, why didn't you go to school? School? Well, I... uh... Go ahead, tell her. 
I was going to school till I met somebody. Met somebody? Yeah, uh, two big monsters with big green eyes. Why, I... Monsters? Weren't you afraid? No, ma'am, but they tied me in a big sack. You don't say. In Galaxy Quest, the Thermians can't understand the concept of lying. My name is Jason Nesmith. I am a actor. We're all actors. He doesn't understand. Explain as you would a child. We, uh, we pretended. Usually in these scenarios, the inability to lie comes from magic or an alternate reality or sometimes a head injury. But in our future, these are devices, little machines that read us and detect the signs of lying. And that's not a trivial proposition. It would be so wonderful if you could say, (laughs) oh, when he does this, you know he's lying. That's Patty Wood, an expert on nonverbal communication and lie detection. I walked in that room and it was the first day and I went, oh, my gosh. There is a name for my ability because I knew from really probably the age of four or five that I would be watching people and they'd be saying things with their words, but I knew that they really didn't believe what they were saying out loud because I could read their nonverbal communication. Wood travels around the country speaking and consulting on how to detect lying in everything from politicians to athletes to CEOs. And she uses nonverbal cues to detect lying, things like... Right before he answered the question, his eyes went closed for about two seconds. But here's the thing about lying and lie detection. So far, we have nothing that is 100% accurate. The, the bottom line is that there's no universal sign that signals lying. But the truth is when you come across really good liars, be they psychopaths or people who lie professionally, not college students lying in a videotape um, about because they've been told to lie, a lot of those things go away. Um, and there are no tells, be they micro expressions or the way that your voice sounds or flushing or the way that you move your body because there's no discomfort. This is what you do every single day. You have so much practice at it. This is who you are and you're not a liar. That's Maria Konnikova, the author of a book called The Confidence Game, which is all about scams and con artists, basically people who are really good at lying. And she says that while some strategies can be better than random chance at detecting lying, none of them are great at it. According to the American Psychological Association, polygraph tests, those lie detector setups that you see in movies and TV all the time, don't accurately tell if someone is lying. There's also a device called a voice stress analyzer. What it does is listen to your voice and try to detect signs of stress, which suggests that you might not be telling the truth. They have those small enough to have them on cell phones. And in fact, from my little back of the kind of work I do, they are on people's cell phones. Not everybody's, but they are on people's cell phones. So that bodies like, I don't state that it's actually existing in FBI, the CIA, can put something on your phone and be able to tell not only what you're saying, but whether you're lying as you say. But according to a study done by the National Institute of Justice, voice stress analyzers are often, once again, no better than chance at detecting lies. 
So maybe these little boxes will hook up into our brains and just detect when we're lying that way. And there's actually a whole emerging field of research that uses brain imaging to try and detect lies. But the thing that um, that people are hoping that they could do with fMRI is actually... Can we ask questions where you can't actually hide a neural response? For instance, showing you pictures, um, you, your brain will react differently to faces that you recognize versus faces of strangers. Um, so if you tell me you don't know someone, that you've never seen them, and then I show you their picture and you react um, as if you've seen them, that can tell me that there's some sort of knowledge that you're hiding. But it's too early to know if these brain-reading systems will be any better or worse than the other methods that are already out there. People are always excited about cool new toys because they haven't yet been disproven, like the cool old toys, which ended up being not so cool after all, um, like your traditional polygraph. In other words, it's unclear how these little lie detection devices might work. But let's say that they do. We can't tell lies without this little box beeping and telling everybody that we're lying. What happens? The first thing that happens is that small talk becomes extremely painful. We tell white lies all the time, starting from the moment where you ask someone, hey, how are you? You don't actually care about how they're doing for the most part. You know, you, you might be the nicest person in the world, but you don't actually care how every single person you meet is doing. And when they tell you great things, they're also lying um, because they might not be great. You know, they, they might have had a rough night. They might be going through a lot of stuff. You seem like a nice person, you ask. They seem like a pleasant person, they answered. Um, if that interaction, if you couldn't lie, um, that would be terrible. You'd just either walk past and say, I don't care how you are, but I'm going to ask you because I have to. And the other person would say, actually, I'm really, really crappy right now. And here is a history of my day. And you'd never want to see each other again. Um, <laughs> And, and I think it would just be, um, it, it wouldn't be a very pleasant world. I, I, it would freak you out because, you know, depending on the research you're quoting, some, the one that, uh, the kind of research that I think is most accurate where they have a little monitor on the, pers- the person and every time they lie, they think, oh my God, click, click. But that self-monitoring device kind of research says that we lie on average 400 times a day. <gasps> 400 times? 400 times a day. Now oh they're counting everything from I'm fine. Um, all of that as a deception. We all lie, and we lie all the time. <clears throat> we lie to ourselves, we lie to others, and uh, we often know people are lying, and we don't care. That's Michael Lewis, a professor at Rutgers University. He's studied deception and childhood development for over 50 years. And he shares Konnikova's feeling that this future will not go well for us. Why would we, why would we want that? Uh, It would lead to uh, the elimination of such questions as, how are you? (laughs) What you would do is raise your arms and show you have no weapon. Because part of the greeting is, in fact, a greeting uh, to say, uh, this is a safe interaction. (laughs) And and the line meter would simply force us to behave very differently. Lewis points out that lying is a really deeply ingrained behavior. He's done all kinds of studies on kids to figure out when they learn to lie. And he says that by two and a half, kids have already mastered lying, partially because we teach them to. Tell grandma you like the sweater, even though you were hoping she'd get you a toy for your birthday. We teach it. We literally teach it. So they learn from us that in some situations, you're supposed to lie. And they apply that to other situations. 
And for any parents who are sad that their kid lies, here's a fun fact. Kids who don't lie in these experiments actually tend to do worse on IQ tests than the kids who do. This is all to say that lying is a really deeply ingrained behavior. We have had it for a long time. And it exists, by the way, in the animal kingdom, too, um, on every single level. Deception helps avoid being killed. I mean, if you think about life or death situations where if you're if you can get away with lying, um, it would save your life. Well, would you really want a device that says, no, you can't lie? Then you'd be dead. And this is not that's not far fetched at all. Um, I think a lot of people will find themselves at one point or another in that particular type of situation where it might not be literally life or death, but where being able to get away with telling a lie can really just save you. Um, and I think it's a little bit dangerous to take away that protective, um, that protective capability. So lying would make small talk impossible and dangerous situations even more dangerous. But our world consists of more than small talk and near-death experiences. And in fact, there are some situations in which not being able to lie might be a good thing. I think it would actually make us better negotiators. If if everybody knew on both directions that there was not going to be any lying, that you couldn't lie, I think there'd be a lot more room in our brain to be creative and, uh, and think about all information and I think we'd be better negotiators without it. Uh, My name is Andrea Kupfer-Schneider. I'm a professor of law at Marquette University Law School and director of the program of dispute resolution. Schneider teaches ethics and negotiations to lawyers, and she says that lying is something that a lot of people come into her classes worried about. I think there's a lot of focus on lying in, in not a very healthy way. I think it colors negotiations in ways that it shouldn't be. I mean, I think when I'm teaching negotiation as a strategy, I think it's lazy. I think we lie because we haven't prepared or we haven't thought about it or we don't feel like asking an awkward question or, or we don't know how to answer an awkward question. So my first response was excitement of like, oh, that would be great not to have to focus on it um, because I don't think that's really the purpose of negotiation and communication for that matter. And despite what you might think about lawyers, most of them don't really want to lie, and they don't want their fellow lawyers to lie. In fact, in one study that Schneider did, she asked lawyers to rank the different attributes that make someone an effective negotiator. The adjective that was most highly correlated with an effective reputation in negotiation was ethical. Yeah, but if you wanted to be perceived by your peers to be an effective negotiator, you need to cultivate an ethical reputation. Not like really good at lying is not on there. <laughs> like actually not on the, I mean, it actually was on the list and it was not, and it was not highly, right? It wasn't highly rated. Um, and, you know, the lawyers that are perceived as unethical are perceived as ineffective. And it doesn't just make contract negotiations a little bit easier. Without the ability to lie, some of our worst humans would probably not have been able to get away with their crimes, or at least would have been caught sooner. I think, you know, well, we wouldn't have Ted Bundy, for one thing. You wouldn't have those types of people who are able to deceive. In that sense, it would be great. I think we'd also lose a lot of our politicians, probably, some of our business leaders. Um, It would be a very, very different world. But there's a flip side here, too. While lawyers might not look for lying as a sign of good lawyering, politicians and diplomats often rely on deception and bluffing to do their jobs. So consider diplomacy, consider spycraft, consider a lot of ways that society is able to to function on a much 
grander scale, um, that will no longer be possible. And so what if all world leaders really knew what everyone thought of each other? That could actually be a, a little bit frightening. What if we had, you know, no sources of clandestine information at all because people could never um, could never do that? What happens if we can't lie during a hostage dispute or a weapons negotiation? Those conversations would be quite different with little beeping boxes going off all the time. But there's another kind of deception that might suffer here, too. And that's what Lewis calls self-deception, the ability to fool yourself into thinking something. We start to see this in kids when they're just a year and a half old. Children start to engage in play where they pretend an object is not what it is. So in a certain sense, the child spinning a, a, a paperclip in the air and pretending it's a helicopter at the time it's playing is deceiving itself that it's a helicopter. So without being able to pretend that that rock is your pet or that stuffed animal is a real lion or that piece of metal is a woman dancing, we could lose some of the art and music and culture that makes so many people really happy. Much of our dreaming, uh, our creativity, uh, arts, uh, probably have as a basis of this capacity to deal with truth or deal with deception, uh, to be reminded constantly that this is not so. This is the mind doing something very uh, creative. I think that would have profound effects on our, on our cultures and art. It's difficult to explain. On our planet, we, uh, we pretend to, uh, to, to entertain. And uh, I am so sorry. God, I am so sorry. And along with all of this, it will also be really hard to end phone calls. Um, well, thank you so much for this. This has been really great. Um, I have to jump on another call soon, so I will let you go. Right, sure. um, but the one thing I'll ask you to do... Um, that was a deception. Okay? That's what? okay. We've talked enough. You've certainly done enough material. I understand it. And you said you don't have to go for another call, which may or may not. But <laughs> if I, if my self-deception, if I wanted to, I said, oh, she's not totally enthralled. I must have not done a good job. <laughs> then I think, I'm going to believe her. She's got another call. Uh, you can, it's so complicated, <laughs> really, is, is all I'm saying. I would never lie to you. <laughs> yeah, the machine would go off. Well, it, it's been, it has been fun talking. For more on lie detection, our obsession with it, and what a future without lying might look like, go to flashforwardpod.com, where I'll post more links. Flash Forward is produced by me, Rose Eveleth, and it's part of the Boing Boing podcast family. The intro music is by Asura, and the outro music is by Broke for Free. 
This week's future voices were provided by Sarah Werner, Brent Rose, Pablo Mayer, Kirsten Butler, Justin Cameron, Guillermo Herrera, and Jess Zimmerman, who also suggested this future scenario. So thank you, Jess. If you want to be a voice in the future, you can do that. It's one of the rewards we have for becoming a patron of the show on Patreon. For more on that, go to patreon.com slash like my name. If you want to suggest a future we should take on, send us a note on Twitter, Facebook, or by email at info at flashforwardpod.com. We love hearing your ideas, so keep sending them. And if you think you've spotted one of the little references I've hidden in this episode, email us there too. If you're right, I will send you something cool. I made this week's references really easy, so you should all be able to find them. If you want this show to be bigger and better in the future... You can head to iTunes and leave us a nice review or just tell your friends about us. Those things really do help. That's all for this future. Come back next week and we will travel to a different one.